Hello, my finest of friends. Welcome to not quite a retro Rahalastapa this week. It's a little extra special from the Bristol Slapstick Festival in which I am the interviewee and I'm being interviewed by Robin Ince uh, about my Desert Island dicks, no, uh, films. Uh, Desert Island flicks, I think that's what they call it. Uh, it's uh, me choosing, I think, my eight favourite film clips um, and talking about why they're my favourite and why they influence me, etc. Blah de blah. I hope you will find it interesting. Uh, obviously, for copyright reasons, we have not included the film clips in this podcast, but you can go and track them down pretty easily or watch the films. They're all fucking excellent. They got the uh, Muppet Christmas Carol one wrong anyway, so you'd have had to go and find that in any case. Um, it was a really fun chat for, uh, with Robin. Uh, revealed lots of stuff about myself, some of which you will be aware of already if you are. A regular listening to this, but not all of it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Richard Herring's Desert Island Flicks as told to the wonderful Robin Ince on this Rahalastapa, Rahalastapa feed. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Good afternoon. Uh, the Slapstick Festival has a lovely tradition where uh, you never quite know who's interviewing who. Who's the interviewer? Who's the interviewee? <laughs> it swaps around all the time. Uh, it's much like the film performance. Um, but it's uh, I'm interviewing Richard Herring, the, the podcast pioneer, Richard Herring, the uh, uh, author. Oh, enormous number of, of wonderful Edinburgh shows as well in the, in the 90s and you know all those plays, which I, I hope oh, wonder, some nice. of which will get resurrected at some point. Be because nice. you, you worked with yeah, relentless Relentlessly, I think, you know, brilliantly. Um, and we're basically going to look through all of the things, or at least some of the, the different influences uh, and things that um, Richard has gone on to rip off so lovingly <laughs> over the last few years. Because um, that's what we all do. Every time you think you've come up with an original joke and then you go, oh, I see the Greeks were doing that. Um, so I'll start off because, you know, like me, you, and I think a few of the comics that we know, you are also you really are in love with comedy. Well, it's a bit like obviously Barry is going to be hovering over us all the time during yeah. this weekend in particular. Um, you know, Barry was totally in love with jokes, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I always, I think the two people whose careers I most wanted to emulate and have failed to do so uh, were Michael Palin, who I just think has the most perfect career uh, in terms of doing exactly what he wants and you know, a broad range of different things, and they're all amazing. Uh, and Barry Cryer, in terms of just staying in love with comedy, I mean, he's been, he was involved with everything <laughs> that, that he possibly could be. But that was the remarkable thing about it, was that he, that he cared about the next generation. He wasn't one of those horrible, pissy, older men who go, why, why is it all changed? Why are they all swearing? Why are they doing this? He kind of embraced each thing as it came along. And, and I, I started off as a comedy fan, and it's nice doing this because most of these things have from my teenage years, I suppose, when I was just enthralled, living in Cheddar in Somerset and not being able to get out and see very much stuff live. So films and, um, you know, and TV shows were my way in. And comedy meant so much to me. And, I'm, and you know, lots of people were into bands and I wasn't that interested in 
music, really. I was just it's really... It's just iced tea, wasn't it? Ice, well, iced tea came later. I kind of, we were all into the, the Sex Pistols a bit too late in Cheddar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but even... even I, were you one of those ones where you go, well, the best Sex Pistols song's frigging in the rigging or something like that? <laughs> Maybe. But, we, you know, everything was just a little bit... Because, you know, there weren't even bands and you, you, until we could drive, which I couldn't do till I was 26, so that wasn't much good. We couldn't come... You know, we used to come to Bristol for a few things. I think we saw... We saw uh, and actually, I think it's all Buzzcocks in, in London anyway. So, yeah, I didn't really go to many gigs. But so t TV and films were, were it. And I remember, you know, we would sneak. I'm, I don't know, I can't remember if there's anything. Uh, I can't remember what I've chosen now. But, we, we, you know, we'd sneak into the Wells Odeon when it was still there and uh, pretend we were 18 when we were 14 and go and, <laughs> go and see soft porn films, but comedy mainly. We saw, well, we saw to be fair, your first choice, I know, I, I don't know if you'd have seen it on the big screen, I think it once was on a double bill with Airplane, got, got re what, remarked. Which, what, you basically, you've picked something where you've picked a very innocuous sketch from it, but I know why teenage Richard Herring well, liked it. This is probably it. why 20-something and 30-something Richard Herring <laughs> liked it as well. This is exactly... Um, the, the, I went to see Kentucky Fried Movie and it was on with a film called The Other Cinderella. Which was uh, which was just a, a, a soft porn version of, and this was when it was, it was just before probably the, the video revolution. So it was literally for these fourteen-year-old boys. We went in in the order of what how, when we thought we would get in. So it wasn't. So the last one they went, and who was ironically the oldest, Phil Fry. He was he was the September baby. He he looked really young, and they went, oh no, not him, not him. And we went, well yeah yeah he is. And so they, they I mean we could, there's no way they couldn't have known we were all fourteen. But we all we my main memory is watching the other Cinderella and all being uh, slightly overexcited <laughs> by, by that concept. But the Kentucky Fried Fried movie also did have an element of soft porn to it, didn't it? Yeah, it had those sketches where you go, this isn't really a sketch, is it? <laughs> Catholic high school girls yeah. in trouble, I think, is the one you'll remember. It was hard to find one that I thought, this is... This is. This, I can't even remember what I chose. I well, you have chosen your favourite, or what we should say is the only one that was acceptable uh, at, you know, pre-Watershed at yeah. the Watershed. Um, and it is... Uh, this is uh, your favourite sketch from Kentucky Fried Movie. Let's have a look, shall we? But you know the they the guys the Zucker brothers were behind all that weren't they and uh, various like, other people I think Kentucky Fried Movie but that 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 whole stream of comedy which I think has really sort of influenced so many people but that was the first one wasn't it and Top Secret was I remember going to see Top Secret which was also I think after Airplane was it yeah um, but that did that didn't really make the same impact but I remember going to see that with my brother and loving it just crazy there's some one really... of them's become a bit nuts hasn't he one of one, one oh, of really? the uh, one, isn't one of the Zucker brothers uh, just making these kind of awful right wing films about oh, where Christmas is banned by atheists and stuff oh, like that's that a, that's a kind shame of a bit... Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> <laughs> but also John Landis, of course, who there's a, the, I, I, I think it's in the yeah. movie, as far as I remember. Were you one of those teenagers that adored the fact that there was a, a constant joke in John Landis movies where there would always be a reference to see you next Wednesday? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, so that if you know that the, 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 uh, the, the porn film in American Wealth in yeah. London is called See You Next Wednesday, even in Michael Jackson's thriller, there's a moment where he goes, a message written in blood, it says see you next Wednesday. And those kind of utterly, utterly pointless jokes that yeah. for teenagers are like kind of, oh, I can't wait to see the little, you know, <laughs> the Easter egg, I suppose, in some way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they meant so much, you know, because, again, these things, they meant they were, they were a little bit titillating, obviously, that was part of it as well. But it was, you know, 
I think really the comedy <laughs> was the thing that sadly was the most exciting thing about about these slightly pornographic uh, uh, comedy shows. But you know, I mean, it was it, it was seeing. I think again, I mean, because we were a little bit too young for Python in our generation, and I was kind of aware of it. And the films came out, and you know, we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, so like Tiz was and things like that were the, were our way in, and I just always loved that. That that's I think been throughout my life that kind of anarchic comedy that's in Tiz was that's obviously in Python but it's in, in all the Zuckerberg stuff as well is just has always been the thing that's exciting I, mean, I think the densely packed nature of those of airplane uh just all the jokes going on and you kind of when we when we started doing our tv show it was really I, I just wanted everything to I wanted there to be so many jokes that you couldn't even take it in so we we even tried to get uh to take to get CFAX so we could put different subtitles to the, what were on the show. We weren't allowed, but we were going to write a whole different show for, for this, for people watching, which I suppose is sort of a cruel joke in a way. But it was just, it was, you know, it was just that you could watch it and get another layer of jokes. Well, that, when did you realise, because I, I was thinking of that with something like, you know, Fist of Fun, where, you, you know, you had, like... Python and others, you know, the the books were not just here's a load of stuff in the series. Your your Fist of Fun book is a fantastic book, filled yeah, with. But it's exactly that. It's a, it's the disappointment as a comedy fan when you'd get the Christmas book and it would be you'd open it up and it would be seven pages long and it would be pictures of the people in the fun, in a funny hat. You know, we wanted the Python books were amazing. You know, we, those Python books were so dense and so amazing, and we just wanted it to make sure it was that. You know, I think like. The early Not That I Got News ones were great, and then they just sort of got worse and worse. And, you know, and you know, as a comment, like, I think teenagers have, have the best, because they're so obsessed about things and because it's, it becomes their life, they, they have the best taste in a lot of ways. You know, I remember when people go, yeah, but only teenagers like your stuff. And you go, great, that's exactly mm. what I want, you know, because those are, the, those are the comedy connoisseurs. It means something to you. And so I think to feel like you're being ripped off is a horrible feeling from people that you... So we just, you know, we really wanted to make that book as dense as you know and as full of good stuff as possible and we had lo we just had lots of material because we wrote radio shows so a lot some of it came out of the radio show some of it was original but uh, i mean things like the uh, the thing i love the cut up football stickers that Stu did he, that was on his wall at, at college you know he did that at college one night when he was drunk and made these cut up panini stickers and just made them into ridiculous characters like Mick Mick McCann McCall something like that, you know, <laughs> and just slightly freaky faces and they we just put those those in the book but they're you know they're endlessly fascinating because uh, there's so much detail in there, but that's so. Yeah, I think that's the detail and and, and the fun and maybe less of the of the slightly sexist <laughs> gratuitous gratuitous breasts. But yeah. Have you ever seen Amazon Women on the Moon? Uh, no, I have not seen. Has it. anyone ever seen that that movie? Yes. Yeah. It's a great. It, it, it's like it's Kentucky, but it's also as well as John Landis. It's Joe Dante, and I can't remember who else. It's got some really cracking. Uh, a, a wonderful Ed Begley Jr. The Invisible Man Returns right. uh, sketch, which is a man who believes he's invisible because he's gone mad from drinking all the chemicals right. and just wanders around a pub naked. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, um, the uh, now we could put your next clip is Python, and I think it is for our generation, as you said before. It, it's like I don't think I actually saw an episode of Monty Python probably till I was almost a teenager. It wasn't yeah. repeated. Uh, I think I was... there was something. Some of them make. I sort of have a vague memory of seeing some repeat at some point. Like I was allowed to stay up and watch it. They might repeat it once. But yeah, there was. You know, now I've got all of Monty Python on DVD, and, and I haven't watched them. I can't. If you get back to the fourteen-year-old me and say, "One day I'll have every single," and it's on all on Netflix, so you can watch every single Monty Python episode. And I haven't got. I haven't watched them all. But uh, I mean, I probably have at some point. But uh, but uh, yeah, it was. So the films came out. And it was. It was the. And it was very hard to choose anything from the films because I would have. I could have done 
12 Monty Python. Which, what have I, cho- have I chosen? Holy Grail or Life of Brian? Well, I'm going to let it be a okay. surprise each okay. time. Because um... I went through, I went through lots of, but you know, but I think Life of Brian, I, and I was very lucky to have Michael Palin on the, on the, on my podcast just before lockdown, funnily enough. And, it, we, and uh, uh, you know, it's, he's such a, you know, so generous and, but also so happy to talk about, he started doing bits of, I think it's probably this one. He started doing the, the, the sketch, you know, in the podcast. It's, and like, some people are like, oh no, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to do it. He started just doing his own thing. And backstage, we did a backstage interview and I asked him something about uh, King Herod. It was one of my emergency questions. And he improvised a whole little sketch about King Herod, which you can, if you're a monthly badger, you can watch in, my, in, the, in the secret bits of my website. But it's, it, you know, he's so, he was sort of so into it still. But I think Life of Brian, they were all on top form. Graham Chapman wasn't drinking and is, is brilliant in it. Um, Palin is just... You know, all of those characters that he plays in Life of Brian, you kind of forget the him if you until you go back and look and go, oh my god, he was he was that and he was that and he was that. You know, you forget that he was all these different characters and Cleese is brilliant in it. They're all and the direction is fantastic. So it's it's them at their absolute prime. Though I love uh, Holy Grail as well, but and, but also I wasn't allowed to go and see Life of Brian, so I had the LP um, and I, I learned that off, off behind, and we had to sneak again. I don't know how uh, how. My parents would drop us off in wells and we would say we were doing something else and then they'd pick us up. And I genuinely don't think they realised. So I'm looking back again, they must have known that we were going... But my parents were very much against me seeing Life of Brian. And so it was like a massive, massive deal to get to see it. Yes, yeah, strange, um, isn't it? Because yeah. it was... Yeah, I was banned as well. <clears throat> well, let's have a look at your favourite Monty Python sketch ever, possibly. <laughs> we actually... Uh, and so we loved that so much at school. We had a Mr. Che- that's, that character, Mr. Cheeky, is the name of that character, Mr. Cheeky. And we had a Mr. Cheeky Award, which was a piece of paper torn out of a reporter's pad, you know, that, that little reporter's pad, with Mr. Cheeky Award written on it. And whoever did the cheekiest thing that day at school would get the Mr. Cheeky Award. So we were all trying to be <laughs> as cheeky and rude as Mr. Cheeky. Um, so it was it. So, you know, is, uh, you know, Eric Idle's amazing in that. And, and that, that's just, so, that's, the, that's the part I talked to Michael about. Uh, just that, the idea of a sort of kindly middle-class man kind of just, yes, well done. On we go. It's like a little award ceremony. It's, uh, it's <laughs> just tricking him. It's great. And the fact that Eric Idle's obviously been through 10 or 15 times already. <laughs> I know, I know the way. It's such a... I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating watching those films is how wonderful they look as well, mm. the, between Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, mm. where you look at the, you know, the Holy Grail, hasn't it? It makes it almost impossible to watch John Borman's Excalibur without laughing, because yeah. it actually, on no budget, is... De- and, and that scene there, just the kind of the darkness and the slight dankness and the shadowiness yeah, of yeah. It, it... I mean, I think even things like that get overlooked, because very often they didn't look like a comedy film in the way that that, that kind of very bright-lit hero some gags. No, and it annoys me that comedy films don't ever win Oscars or get nominated for Oscars. I really don't, because it's mu- I think it's much, much harder to do a successful wall-to-wall comedy film that lots of people are going to like, that is genuinely funny, than doing something deadly serious. It's kind of easy to be deadly serious. It's easy to do a... F- <laughs> don't want to put down all the Oscar winners, but it's comparatively easy <laughs> to make a subject like The Holocaust quite a sad film. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Uh, whereas it's quite hard to turn, you know, any, to turn the biblical story into jokes. I mean, it's just it's wall to wall fantastic sketches throughout Life of Brian and and Holy Grail. I think, I think just the, the it's just them at their prime, 
And um, there's, so, there's so much you could choose. I'd have chosen the anarcho-syndicist uh, peasants from uh, Holy Grail, possibly. But uh, it's, uh, and you know, how much of it's ingrained in your head still as a result of <laughs> poring over the LPs usually, wasn't it? Watching, yeah, listening that's to the LPs and uh, learning everything off by heart. I once ended up having an argument with Eric Idle over uh, the fact that a sketch, he, he disagreed with me on what sketch, uh, what, which album it was on. Right. And then I realised I really have to stop, because it's the kind of thing that would happen at the Slapstick Festival as well, <laughs> where someone will come up to you, Rich and say, well, actually, Rich my favourite thing that happens in Fist of Fun is in episode uh, two of series one, yeah. and it's 12 minutes in, and you'll say, I don't think it is. <laughs> and then you realise everyone knows it better than you Yeah, know well, it. definitely. Like, think, certainly, like, uh, I did, I, I, uh, due to my troubles last year, I was, I was writing a blog entry about the testicle fairy who would come you know if you put your testicle under the pillow would take your testicle away and someone said you've done that in fist of fun you know it was this morning i think there was a there was an episode this morning where the testicle fairy turns up for my testicle and you know careful what you're careful what you write it comes yeah. true yeah. that's what i'm saying you're a very much a method comedian aren't you you really the I, I love the fact that from python because this is how i got into the argument there it was because the one of the quotes when i was doing a level uh, and we had to do king lear was the bit of king lear that i know off by heart is from holy grail it's it's John Gilgood playing to a quite an angry, hostile football crowd. Right. And tis this the king? <laughs> I, every inch a king. When I who stare, see how my subject quite. And I know the whole of that, most of the Chaucer yeah. or most of the Shakespeare I can quote is because it was used yeah. in Python yeah. or in some other comedy a sketch. A Saturday afternoon in November was approaching the time of twilight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I talk about Proust all the time. People go, oh, have you read Proust? I go, no, I've just listened to the summarising Proust <laughs> sketch. So... <laughs> Right now, you're next. Now, this one—it's interesting in, in terms of Oscars for you—you've uh, you've chosen this is Spinal Tap, yeah, which is—I uh, mean, it's—it's it's a film that I think every time you watch it, you, I, I don't know how many times you've seen it. I mean, so many. But I didn't even notice the cold sores until about the 25th yeah. time of watching it. You might know that, you know, there's, there's a bit... I just never noticed it, because I was watching so many other things. Yeah, yeah. As you were talking about the number of jokes, yeah. that has background jokes, foreground jokes, verbal jokes. There's so much going on. Yeah, and you don't spot it. And then, yeah, and it's, every time I watch it, something new will tickle me. It's just because it's the nuance of the performances as well, so often it's just the way someone says something and you haven't noticed it before. I think, in a way, some of the bigger sight gags feel almost too... You know, they're getting trapped mm. in the pod almost feels too much for the film it's still very funny but it is and it, and you know there's all the extra if you buy the extended version you there's an old subplot with the with this cold source and there's a female band they're touring with i think or something mm -hmm. isn't it that they that they all get off with um so there's so much stuff there but it, again it's so um influential on everything that's happened and again a film that at the time sort of almost disappeared under the radar it's become successful as a as a result of dvds and bands getting into it and and as a comedian, we would watch this on the Lee and Herring tours at least once a tour. And you would still, there would be bits that, you know, they're walking around backstage trying to find the stage. And we'd always joke about when, uh, you know, uh oh, here they come when the girls run past to the, the <laughs> fans and they run past the other band. I think we were in Reading and uh, I think. There was there was just one time these girls actually were waiting for someone to go, oh, here they come. <laughs> the girls came up to us and they were waiting for someone. We were really confused because that never happened. Uh, and we'd already done the joke of, oh, here they come. And then they were. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, all those things were so, are so good. But, but I think that improvisational thing is the stuff. I'm, I'm working with the Welsh director called Jamie Adams at the moment, and, and he's sort of very much in the Mike Lee, Christopher Guest arena of, of basically improvising, of having a very... Minor, having an idea of the story, but then letting the actors just completely go off and improvise. And it, can, it gets really interesting stuff. And I, and I think 
they, you know, this, they would, they, I think all of the, on our day-to-day -day stuff was all influenced by, by Spinal Tap, which then influenced so much. And I think it's, I don't think, I think if this hadn't, if this hadn't existed, I don't think comedy would be the same. I think it's sort of like the goon show of not quite our generation, maybe just the generation before our generation in terms of the influence it's had subsequently, I think. Is yeah, it, I mean, I'm trying great. to think of when those kind of those brilliant documentary, because also, again, going back to Eric Idle, of course, and, and, and Neil Innes with Rutland Weekend Television, you start to see very, very, you know, beautifully done. And then the Ruttles, that, yeah. you know, that, that, that yeah. spoofing of the documentary form. And, and if it did, was anyone here when we, we showed bad news at, at the old Vic, Bristol Old Vic? And that, and that was such a kind of, uh, there's never been so many Motehead T-shirts at Bristol Old Vic. It was like <laughs> they all came along. And, and, you know, often the, the Spinal Tap gets put together and you go, well, actually, they're entirely separate things. And they're very yeah. separate, very different stories. Yeah. It's only the fact they're rock bands. Well, let's have a look at your favourite yeah. ever sketch from uh, This Is Spinal <laughs> Tap, probably. They're still booing. They were still booing yeah. when we were on. <laughs> Just, yeah, you can use those a lot, those lines. <laughs> That's what I did in real life. But yeah, they're so, I mean, they're so, I mean, again, I've gone on for incredible. And I, I, I uh, interviewed Harry. I uh, haven't yet interviewed the other two, but um, the you know he's he goes right back to he was in Abbott and Costello films as a kid, so when you interview someone like him, he's much older than you think he is, Harry Shearer, and uh, you know when you interview someone like that, that's an that's an incredible career to work with Abbott and Costello and been in that and been in The Simpsons and again, so they've got, they've all gone on to incredible things, but afterwards rightly so, but um, it, I think that's just. Again, it's just when you get when everything sort of hits right, and they obviously filmed so much for it that they were able to sort of cherry pick. But I think it could have, you know, I'd happily watch eight hours of it, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I wouldn't stand. I, I could watch because even when it's boring, it's interesting, and they're so good, and the accents are so good, and that's very. Un and if you watch Americans doing, I know there's a sort of bit of Britishness in the, in, the, in there amongst that, but when you watch Americans doing British people, usually it's, you know, it's, it's not good. Is it? <laughs> what's, what's been for you, that in, in, um, because you've now done, you've done so many interviews, you've been doing the podcast for so long, you must have had a moment sometimes where you've been interviewing someone and you're just doing the normal thing and then suddenly your teenage brain goes, you do know who this is <laughs> and you do know what 15-year-old Richard Herring would yeah. have made of this. And I still, you know, yeah, it's still, when it's... It, it's I mean, you know, it, sometimes I'm very, very starstruck, but it was, it was so incredible having Michael on, Michael Palin on. Uh, and he was so nice. I genuinely thought I might cry, to be honest. I was sort of crying thinking about it before I did it. It was sort of all right once I did it, but, but it's clear that, you know, it's, it's clear that I'm, I'm a fan. And, but the lovely thing about the podcast is the people I have on are people I like. And, uh, you know, and it's, I, I can't really think of, there might have been times when occasionally someone has been suggested and I've said, I'll give it a go. But nearly always it's, it's somebody I've chosen to be on because I think they're great and or I'm interested to find out what they've, they've, they've got to say. So, you know, to when someone like Michael finally comes back and says yes or when someone like Harry says yes, you know, that's, that's just sort of crazy, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I, the, the comedy fan is still there, but hopefully always will be because it's... It, I'd hate to become blasé about any of it, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's so lovely just to be able to make a career out of the thing that you wanted to do. Mm. So whatever level you're at, and I think that's the sort of realisation as you go, and again, the, the, from, I mean, and the Barry Cryer interview I did, which we just, uh, just back in sort of September, um, you know, to see him so happy and still loving comedy, and I think that's the thing. If I stopped loving comedy, and there have been times when mm. I haven't loved comedy or I haven't loved being a comedian, but basically I think it's, you know, it's nice to get new people on, it's nice to get 
absolute legends on, but it's 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 staying interested, isn't it? I think it's if you're not interested, and if you if you shut yourself off from people coming up uh, and the, and new stuff coming through, then you're going to have a sort of horrible, bitter, dull life anyway. But it's 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 understanding the progress of it and the, the fact that things go up and down, and some people, you know, I mean, Michael Palin has been at the top all the way through, really, hasn't he? But um, it's it's that ups and it's those ups and downs of the of a career that make it sort of interesting and uh, and I think the the, the main thing I've realised by doing it is just how many talented people there are out there and how there's a there's a lot of it's a lot to do with talent and skill but there's a lot of luck about who is the person that pokes through you know I know Chris Lineman who's a, a fantastic stand up and and very imaginative clown. And he's never had the appreciation he deserves, but he has equally worked for nearly 50 years. In the, he's in a the remarkable... Job yeah, yeah but you, if you don't know Chris Lyon, if he's, uh, he used to do The Greatest Show on Legs with Martin Sohn and Malcolm Hardy doing the famous The Balloon Dance, which you may well have seen ripped off for various people, and he used to end his act with a Roman candle uh, stuck up his bottom <laughs> on fire, just standing there like that with his genitals tucked <laughs> in and on fire. And I remember doing a gig with him at, um, in Worthing, where uh, he went on last. He, he, the, the gig we'd done the night before in a different town, he'd absolutely stormed it, and the promoter said, who should go on last? And I said, oh, Chris Lyon. And then he went on, and because he's quite a kind of... Uh, quite avant-garde, some yeah, of the stuff. It's really beautiful amazing. performance art stuff, but if you go for it, it is hilarious and beautiful. But they just did not go yeah, for yeah, it. it was... And he's doing such a... And then he's standing there, he gets as fast as possible, he thinks, I better just get to the Roman candle stuck up the arse then. <laughs> but by that point, the audience have lost all interest and he's just standing there. So to stand there, <laughs> almost on fire, like that, with people not quite booing, but with no interest. <laughs> and, then, and then a woman just shouted out, I'm sure they'd like this kind of thing in Brighton, love. <laughs> and then that, and it was like, kind of... And imagine not being interested in that. Yeah, imagine yeah. even getting not even enjoying that, and then someone does that, you still go, no, still, still not. <laughs> Jimmy Carr did it with a Catherine <laughs> wheel. Oh, okay. Um, but so you know, I think like that. I think in the end, you know, loving comedy and being lucky enough to do it as a job has to be enough for for everyone. But it, but Mo, I was talking to Mark Watson about this really because Mark always kind of worried, you know, about where he was and why he wasn't more successful and whatever. But actually. In some ways, it can be a it can be a sort of burden to get further than you should. And so creatively, you know, he's one of the most creative and imaginative <laughs> comedians of his generation. Uh, and again, isn't as as a bigger name as some of the people he worked with. But it's it, you know, I think he's come to terms with it and understands that it's actually there's there's benefits either way. But it's but to, just that it's lovely to have a thing where people still want to come and see you and where you can. Uh, Keep on doing stuff. I don't quite know. We haven't got. We've got onto that. It's not really true of any of the things we're talking about. But, but the uh, and so that brings us very neatly to your next clip, which is <laughs> the. Um, it's. Uh, but I know I, what I find because I was thinking about the fact that when uh, Barry Cry used to do a show with Willie Rushton called Two Old Farts in the Night," which I think, by the way, they were younger than us um, <laughs> when they did that. And uh, I remember Barry talking about one night where Willie said to him, "You've fallen out of love with the jokes." Yeah. And he said he'd just realised that he was going through the motions. Yeah. And he said, I never allowed, allowed that to happen again. Yeah. That was, it would have been sometime, I think, probably late 80s, early 90s. What's the nearest 
you've come to just thinking, I this is not worked out. I'm not happy. You know, and you and did you have a moment? Of yeah, standing yeah. There on was stage? a there was a lot of time sort of between you know because it was a weird thing. We were successful, you know, relatively successful early on, and you know we were involved in on the hour, and 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 so that was an amazing start. And then got our own TV show within sort of five years of starting. And I don't think you appreciated. You couldn't appreciate as a you know someone in their mid to late twenties how lucky that was and that it might stop. So it was a, it was quite a big jolt to suddenly for that to end. And I, I worked with Al Murray for a couple of years and and sort of made some money for the first time because I wrote, we wrote so many episodes. And then I had a period where I was sort of sitting at home, you know, wondering what the point of it all was. And I think even though those tour shows I did in the early two thousands. Um, yeah, sometimes you'd just go, you know, I'd be, play, I'd be playing in an art centre to 30 people and they really weren't going for it. And you would just put your head down and just say, say the words as quickly as you could. And you just go, yeah, I do, you know, but you sort of realise that's not, that's not how you do it. So there was times there where I was thinking, you know, am I going to carry on doing this? What's next? How, you know, what's, how am I going to go through to the next thing or am I going to stop? And I think you just realise, no, if you've got a gig like that, you're not blaming the people who've turned up. Right, those 30 people have, have turned yeah. up. That it's the 400 people who didn't turn up that you should be angry with. But also, you've got to give them the best show that you can. I think there was, you know, I did deliberately, I did a couple of standard shows that were deliberately irritating. Um, and it was, they were funny, I think they were good. A lot of people look back at them as being good, but a lot of people were irritated by them. And, I, and there's a, Which were your most irritating? Because I'm running through them at the moment. So, and someone I'm, like, yeah. I think someone likes yoghurt. <laughs> which had a whole half that was about me buying seven yogurts, nine yogurts from a supermarket, and the and the checkout girl questioning me and saying someone likes yogurt because I bought, and then me arguing that I didn't particularly like yogurt for sometimes up to an hour. <laughs> That's a routine. That routine was actually okay. There was a routine about the Pope in that. When I, well, I did all my shows again a few years ago. I did like. Uh, 12 shows or 13 shows, whatever it was, in six weekends. And that was the hardest one to relearn, but also that when I listened to it, just because it was four or five relentlessly battering away at an idea routines. And that was the one. I just think as a parent now, when you're one night out, might be one night out a month, and then to go out and see some prick just trying to piss you off. <laughs> I would just think, I know, I'm not going to do that anymore. I will, you know, I can do that in a small amount in my, to enjoy myself. But, you know, I want to be entertaining. I want to, I want to make the shows as good as possible. And I think the minute I was over that hump, that maybe 2005, 2006, where I was just thinking, you know, what's, you know, where am I going to go? I just thought, no, this, you've got to be entertaining. You can be avant-garde, you can do whatever you want with it, but you've got to get, people have to be laughing. <laughs> and that's, that's the main thing. And so, and so I think, you know, that was, that was a big thing. And then realising how fortunate I was. I think the pod, sorry, doing the podcast was a massive stroke of luck because I, it gave me something to do. It meant I could channel... Uh, I, all my creativity into that, come up, do ideas that I didn't have to uh, ha get, run past the committee and try stuff out. But also it meant I was introducing to an audience that, you know, weren't necessarily, didn't, weren't aware of me. So then when I toured, my audience doubled from sort of 50 to 100 or 100 to 200, depending on which one it was. And that made, it, that made all my tours financially viable, which took a big weight off, but also it meant I could really put my efforts into making those shows as good as possible, which then got more people to come and see them, you know. So I, it was, I'm really proud of what I did with those shows because it was building, it was sort of starting from scratch and building an audience from nothing. And over a period of 15, 15 years, you know, I was sometimes playing to a thousand people and that was without really any TV exposure or anything. It was, 
extra than the ones we had in the 90s. It was sort of, you know, to know that I'd done that by people seeing the show and then saying to the mate, oh, he's back this year. Do you want, do you want, I, I saw this last year, come and see it. And to do it that way, it felt real. And also I became much, much better at doing mm. the job and much, much better at understanding what the job was. And I think that's, it's great to know Barry went through it as well. Because, you know, it shows everyone does it. If Barry went through it, it's because he loves comedy. But it can be a dispiriting thing, comedy, and it can be... And, you know, usually in Edinburgh, even now, there's a couple of days where I'm very depressed. Well, but it's then... hard not to look at... That's the thing, isn't it? The trick is, and it's a very hard trick, is not at any point to look at where someone else is. Yeah, yeah. And to look at someone else's... And, and there is... And I think in Edinburgh as well, in particular, during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, there is... I, I remember the year where, uh, the day before my show started, uh, the basement flat that I lived in in London flooded with excrement, <laughs> destroying everything I owned. And uh, someone came up to him and went, you all right, Robin, how you doing? And I, I just found out, and I went, oh, I'm not just found out that everything I own has been destroyed by excrement. And they went, I just got four stars in the Metro. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of... Yeah, you have that and go, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the world it is. And, and yeah. some, you, you find the allies as well, because once you can sit with people and they can say, I'm not having a good time, yeah. or I'm not... And you can go, oh, it's... it's but I think it's that's that you don't realise, you know, when you're playing to an art centre and there's 30 people, they think, oh, God, I'm, I'm failing. And then, because nobody comes up to you and goes, yeah, I, I got 12 people at that art centre, people, people bullshit or don't mention it. So when you talk things through, but yeah, ultimately the realisation that you are just trying to do, if you're competing against anyone, it's yourself. That's why I play myself at snooker. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, your only, your only ambition should be to try and do something better or more interesting or more imaginative or whatever. And, and I think it's really important to keep on trying stuff you know and not and that doesn't that means sometimes failing and that means sometimes you know persisting with an idea that other people aren't, aren't people aren't liking if you mm. there's things i do that i i know are, my favorite things i do at the moment are, pl are clearing stones off a field and commentating about it uh and the puppets you know doing the ventriloquist puppet show and they're not to everyone's taste but i think there there's something really interesting in both of them and they will only become incredibly interesting, especially the stone one, if it goes on for 20, 25 years. <laughs> and then at that point, I think people will start to get it. Some people get it now, but I think it, there's something... Yeah, you felt... R Ronnie Corbett did it over five minutes. <laughs> yeah. You decided to do it over 25 years, yeah. the rambling, yeah. shaggy dog yeah, field yeah. clearing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, but I think, that, you know, I'm, it's, it's such a lucky position I'm in that you know, money's coming in and I'm able to fund things with, with that money and I'm also able to do esoteric ideas that nobody else would, would ever go near putting on if I didn't do it myself and also do things that you know, are, are, are more mainstream. Um, so it's, it's, you know, that's, that's for me the exciting thing about it. And comedy is su such a rich variety of things and it's very easy to just go, right, I'm gonna concentrate on this one thing and really perfect this one thing. Or you can go over a career, I'm gonna have a crack at getting better at every single element of comedy. I think probably the only thing I, I wouldn't be able to do is what, I'm interviewing John Culture to, Culture tomorrow. I don't think there's any chance of me ever becoming an impressionist. <laughs> oh, now, yeah. what about an impressionist who can't do impressions at all, but, but really thinks he can? So, you know, there's, there's, some, you know, there's something in it. So it's, you know, it's really, I was, lockdown was weird. And um, again, I was lucky because we put, put all this stuff in place to, maybe start doing a bit of stuff from home. And then I, was, I had all this uh, brilliant equipment to record stuff from home, but 
the just just thinking now I'm going to try and do something with this. I'm going to try ventriloquism. I'm going to see what happens with it. I'm going to not practice accepting the show and then just and improvise an entire show. And there's lots of kids, younger comedians. I shouldn't call them kids because they're all in their 30s really. But uh, they're uh, you know they, they do these improvised shows and they invite me on their improvised shows and you kind of go you can just do an hour without any preparation, which is is the, is the spinal tap thing. It's just. Here's the idea, we're doing a book club but this, of a book that doesn't exist that we're making up, or uh, we're going to do an acting masterclass and you're not an actor, or whatever. Uh, and, or you're going to do a puppet show with puppets where a man's having a breakdown and you're not quite sure if it's real. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not quite sure if it's real or not. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's... So that's... And that's enough, isn't it? It's sort of... It's an, if it, as long as the thing's enough in itself, it doesn't matter what else happens with it. If it becomes a big success, then that's nice. And if, you, if it makes bring some money in that's nice but also if it's just if it's good and it's fun and you know 200 people like it that's still quite nice isn't it well that brings us very neatly to tony curtis <laughs> um the uh, i'm just gonna go i've suddenly rose we're only we only got to the fourth clip we're not okay. got long left okay. um the uh we'll so uh you like some like it hot don't you i do i love brilliant that's like all it. we need so let's have a look at uh richard's clip <laughs> from his favorite moment ever from some like it hot How do you get? It's rare to get a film that just—it's just the best punchline to a film yeah. ever. To, and it's the uh, the writing in that is so about all the way through that. I mean, all the way through the film. But you just watch the, the writing, even the bit with Marilyn and uh, is is and uh, yeah, what's his face? Tony Curtis. <laughs> yeah, Tony Curtis. Uh, that's showbiz. Uh, <laughs> it's just so crisp, isn't it? So brilliant. So it's it's yeah. It's just, I, I love the whole film, but it's uh, it's. I just think to to come up with a a punchline to a film of that standard. Is, is impregnant. There are a few, aren't there? There's not many, but a few punchline films. They're not always comedies. Escape from New York, for instance. John Carpenter has a punchline <laughs> at the end of it with a jazz tape. <laughs> right. And, and the Alan Parker's Birdie as well has this huge build-up about mental health and all these things. And at the end, you think this guy who now believes he's a bird, you see him, his friend stopping these people and he, at the edge of a building and he just falls. Right. And his friend goes, Birdie! <laughs> and then he runs up and it turns out it's just down one floor and he goes, what? And it's the <laughs> First time, and, it, and it's like the fact that you've watched two hours of a drama yeah. about mental health issues in Vietnam, and Alan Park goes, and we'll end on a punchline. And that, that is, you know, pretty not brave enough thing. Shift, shifting of uh, genres. That's why I, I want to do films that are serious for three quarters of it, and then suddenly turn into slapstick comedy. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant film, obviously. Well, we'll move on just so we can try and fit them all yeah, in. Yeah. And now we're talking about John Landis before, uh, and see you next Wednesday. And you have uh, chosen uh, American Wealth in London again. I imagine you were putting on a voice to get into the Wells Cinema to see I'm this I'm sure one. I was. And again, there's there's some titillation in this film. Now, I love Jenny Agatha for all time as a result of the titillation <laughs> in this film. And she's, ama I mean, she's amazing. And she's, she's very funny and absolutely beautiful, gorgeous. Uh, but, the, you know, the, again, it's just one of those films. Rick Mail's in, in, in this film, and that was just, like, blew my mind as a, that Rick Mail was in it. And I think when they did the premiere... All the kids were screaming for Rick, and no one knew because he's sort of just an extra in it almost. But uh, it was it was going it was going nuts. But yeah, just think again, it's that combination of uh, of genres, I suppose. But but just to make this subject so funny, uh, and I just watched this film in certain points until the tape uh, <laughs> became too cloudy to watch anymore. But again, the comedy of it is fantastic as well as the 
There's a lovely thing as well. You talk, of course, Rick Mail, I think, is playing chess with uh, Brian Glover. Yeah. And uh, again, another tremendous actor and part-time wrestler. And, and when when he died, the Guardian, that was famous for its typos in its obituary, said <laughs> that he died of a Brian tumour. And, and, and someone said he would have absolutely loved that. Well, he got the worst kind of tumour for a Brian. He got a Brian tumour. You, know, uh, you can't get through. Um, well, this is Griffin Dunn as well, who is a fantastic... He's a producer and he's done many other things. And he, and, uh, he made... A, a, a documentary recently about his uh, his aunt, I think it is, Joan Didion, as well, who recently died. But Griffin Dunn's timing in this, he's, have you ever seen After Hours? The, no. Which I think is... Has anyone here seen After Hours? It's a Martin Scorsese. I think it's a, one of the great... I, I'm surprised you haven't seen it. Right. it it's not like a, a Martin Scorsese film in, in the way you'd imagine. It's yeah. just about a guy who has the worst night out ever in New York and everything just keeps going wrong. Right. And Griffin Dunn, it's, it's an absolute kind of screwball classic. Yeah. But we're not going to be showing that. Let's have a look at Griffin <laughs> Dunn. A few years earlier, American Werewolf in London. <laughs> it has that great moment, doesn't it, where they have a, they cut to the sex film and yeah. it's just someone ringing up. She goes, yeah. "No, you got it the doesn't wrong number." Live, yeah, wrong number. <laughs> I think that's the mother. Is that the mother of uh, the guy from Tiger Mad Honey Drew? Isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a, but it's a very interesting thing, as you said, because it's a proper gory film, yeah. and, you, and you obviously see the enormous influence it had on on uh, Edgar Wright and and, yes, and Simon yeah. Pegg, because Shaun of the Dead, similarly, yeah. is a is a proper at, at times very emotional and gory horror film and a very yeah. funny comedy as well. But it's lovely the way that those characters just react in different ways. So the guy the guy from the tube's really angry, and the and the young couple, oh hello, yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's kind of nice just to have that characterization of how people would react. <laughs> really pissed off that you killed me, and then oh. <laughs> the uh, um, oh right, the next one is uh, you've you've chosen some Bill Murray. Oh yes. When did you first kind of become aware of? Uh, I imagine you snuck in and saw the film Stripes. Is uh, my I don't guess. think I did see Stripes. I think I saw something like. Um... Is it called Caddyshack or something like that? Caddyshack, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was the first one I saw. It, I don't. I think. Yeah, obviously, like the Ghostbusters and stuff was. Uh, when it sort of really permeated through how how does Ghostbusters it mean anything to you? Is it one of your films? I like it. I don't. I don't think it would be. We watched it a lot with the kids and stuff, and uh, we watched all the various incarnations of Ghostbusters. And he's. I mean, it's dated a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit rapey, uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, it's you know he's he's like just that that the Bill Murray character, which in this in, in Groundhog Day is. At its at its peak, I think is uh, is what's interesting, and he seems like I like the fact he seems like a, a sort of prankster in real life and stuff. It's all, there are all these stories about him eating people's sandwiches and stuff, and saying no, no one's going to believe that Bill Murray mm. ate your sandwich and stuff like that. So he'll get away <laughs> with it. So he feels like he enjoys his fame, um, but yeah, he's, there's just something when when it's right. See, I think in Scrooge, it's not right. They don't. He, he, and I, I sort totally of disagree. That's a terrible opinion. I don't like Scrooge. The, uh, I think I, I. Do you know what? I'm going to be honest, right? Ghostbusters means nothing to me. Really? I've never got it at all. I think it's the worst Bill Murray film, and that includes Razor's Edge, an adaptation of a W. <laughs> Somerset Maugham novel, right? But uh, um, Scrooge, I think, is absolutely fantastic. Well, even in Groundhog Day, I think the Bill Murray at the start is better than the Bill Murray at the end. Right. So I think in Scrooge, I prefer Bill Murray at the start. I think him becoming all la 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 and oh, life's great ruins it. And, and in Groundhog Day, a bit, I prefer Groundhog Day where he doesn't ever escape. Yeah. Um, certainly than, you know, because it's. But, you know, it's, I think Groundhog Day is just, again, a, a perfect comedy film. It's just a brilliant concept and, and absolutely fantastically explored. They've thought of every level to it. I have very slight reservations 
uh, including the piano teacher at the end saying, I, I, he's my pupil, that doesn't make any sense. Because to him, he just that he's a man who, for some reason, turned up on our door today, able to play the piano perfectly and ask for lessons. So there's no from her. It's annoying, isn't it, when you suddenly find a flaw in the logic of a truly improbable film? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but someone did say that someone tried to explain it to me and, th and thought they'd found a way a reason to make it work. But there's absolutely no <laughs> there's no reason why he would have got that good at the piano. And then he might just have turned up to say hello, but she wouldn't take any credit for unless she too was trapped in it and remembered every... Bit. Yeah, I know some people complained that at that point the film is set that uh, actually uh, Sonny and Cher weren't getting played as much on the radio, okay. so actually it would have been a different song. Okay. And some of the other people have problems with some of the nature of the plumbing in that scene. And they're <laughs> all dicks. Um, so... But aside from that, it's the perfect... Aside from it should be an unhappy ending, it's the perfect comedy film, I think, in terms of, of, of taking an idea and exploring it properly. I don't know which bit I chose from it, but it's... Uh... Well, it's your favourite scene. It's yeah. the French poetry scene okay, that you've well, that gone on about bit. so that is, often. That is, that is and uh, I was hoping it was going to be the piano teacher. <laughs> I'm disappointed. Here is uh, Rich Herring's very favourite scene from uh, Groundhog Day. See, I still I refer him going, what a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, just, I just love that even in that, him chatting up someone and even in that moment not being able to resist going, what a waste of time. <laughs> I think that was the problem with my dating in the early days is I probably thought, I'd be like Bill Murray and just <laughs> say what I think. So you want a kind of memento, a Christopher Nolan memento <laughs> version of that film, yeah. which it plays backwards yeah. to your unhappy I ending. I just think he's he's cooler when he's you know. And again, it's but I mean it's sort of weird ethically, isn't it? That is it's a man <laughs> abusing his position, and he uh, you know it, throughout the film he does different things. But you you know it is also it uh, if you had that power, if you knew that the next day wasn't going to come, you would. You would go through all the things he does. You would, you know, at some point, if it was someone worked out, it was like ten thousand years or something. He's been in there or something like that. It's, you know, we don't know how long he's trapped in that universe. But I just, I don't like him. You know, I don't like the fact he because the Bill Murray at the start is 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 good, is great, and the Bill the Bill Murray at the end, he wants to live in that town. Well, always. I mean, I, I know one of your one of the drives to your comedy has been your hatred of kindness <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Kindness and learning are the two things you hate most of all. <laughs> Repetition of yoghurt, favourite thing. It's a strange career. Um, the, uh, it is, I mean, I forget on a Bill Murray, the fame. I remember being years ago in, in, in New York and seeing the film Wild Things. I don't know if you've ever seen a yeah. Kevin Bacon movie. And he's not on the poster. No one knows Bill Murray's in it. Yeah, and when he suddenly turns up on screen, the whole audience just went crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really, the love that exists for him, yeah. even before that, you know, the, the later Oscar stuff and, and whatever. They, do, you didn't, it's do you sort see? of funny, but that's what, you know, because the things he does and the things he says, a different person could say them and it would be absolutely reprehensible, awful. And even in this day, no, so it's still, even in this day and age, some of the things that are politically incorrect, you still like because that's the character and you still forgive him and you like him. And it's and that's what Barry actually said about about offensive comedy. It's just about whether you like the person saying it or not. If, the, if you if that's to take a joke out of context can make it look terrible. But if the, if the audience loved the performer, they can sort of say anything. And the audience mm. will understand that it, why it's a joke. If you take it, the words and put them in someone else's mouth, it could be a disaster or just write them down on a piece of paper. But that's it. There's just something about him. You don't mind him being the worst human being ever. And you still, you know, you love him. He's, he's awful, really, isn't he? But, he, but you love him because it's honest, I suppose. It's just the, he's an honest, funny person. Yeah, it's pretty, did yeah. you see Tim Minchin's musical of Groundhog Day? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I do. It was good. Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, I, Matilda's amazing and rightfully still going. Uh, but Grand, I think Groundhog Day just like probably. It's, I don't know. Maybe it's just because people have such fond memories of the film. It didn't. It didn't do as well, did it? I think it might be getting resurrected. I saw Back to the Future, the musical as well. But that was. That was. That was good. That's. that's uh, and that, that brings us very neatly to Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, good. So um, this is... Uh, which is so... I mean, the intensity of love for the Muppet Christmas yeah. Carol, the number of people who go, if I could only take one Michael Caine movie, you know, <laughs> yeah. Ipcrest File and Zulu and Jaws 4, out of the window, and... Uh, I people... but I, the reason I've chosen this clip, and I love the film, and it's interesting, it's another film that didn't do very well on release and, and has become much, much loved, which I think is, again, a lot to do with comedy. A lot of times, the first time you see something, you don't necessarily tune in and it takes a little while either to see a few episodes or really get in there and then bang it becomes this massive thing i genuinely think this scene is the greatest acting michael kane has ever done i think it's a very funny scene but i think i i think i think michael kane should have won the oscar for this I, I genuinely do and it never would happen but for he plays and that the reason this film works so well is he plays scrooge entirely straight all the way through uh, and to play straight against beaker <laughs> I'm just like I can't I can never not watch this another it isn't really that funny a scene in a way but I it makes me piss myself every single time I see it just because it's a the scene is in time it's true to the book it's the, it's actually I think just verbatim from the book but beakers in it <laughs> it's the it's the best thing I've ever seen See, it now makes me want to see a Sesame Street version of Get Carter, in which, you know, Big Bird has to go back to Newcastle. That's what I want. Let's, let's see all of these but things But Beaker's happening. very good in it as well, I have to say. Beaker acts very well in it as well, but Michael Caine acts very well against Beaker. Let's have a look now at uh, uh, Michael Caine in, in Muppet Christmas Carol. That's, that's actually your least favourite yeah, bit of I Michael Caine. Because, because I don't like it when... Yeah, Scrooge when Scrooge realises the error of his way. It's a <laughs> terrible like message it. in the film, isn't it? That a cruel really man is bullied by hauntings <laughs> into being something he doesn't want to be. It's a it horrible is. story. Well, you'll have, to watch, you'll have to watch Muppet Christmas Carol again so you can see the right scene. Now, Richard, I know you're not able to do impressions. Could you not do an impression maybe of Michael Caine, <laughs> the scene we were going to see? <laughs> I can't do it. No, I can't really do it. Let's just see how You're it works. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Brilliant. <laughs> is, uh, I've got to say, one of the funniest things ever is watching acts that can't do impressions. Because <laughs> I, I, I remember there was a guy called David Mailing. I don't know if you ever saw him. No. And he he would go on with... And, and he would just do all these routines where he'd go, this is Sylvester Stallone on, on a swing. Don't push me. Like that. And it, But yeah. he believed he was doing yeah, really great it. impressions. Good. Well, like and it was idea. a magnificent thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he was collecting stones as well, it would have been something absolutely marvellous. Um, so, what was what was the scene you were going to? So, the scene is he comes in and it's all it's all them trying to when it, when they're trying to get him to donate in the in the first place, and the nephew's there, uh, and he's saying it's all but it's all about reducing the surplus population, and uh, the the other the professor character's all very serious and going, uh, and and just speakers in the background going, hmm. <laughs> and uh, Michael Caine's just very, very unpleasant and serious throughout. But but Beaker is very judgmental about and uh, surprised that anyone could be as mean as Scrooge, but gets that across in in beeps. <laughs> I don't think we needed the clips. No, in fact, <laughs> let's not have any more of the clips. Now I'd like <laughs> you to reenact this scene from Bridesmaids. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Now, Bridesmaids is a... I, I mean, I think he's an amazing director yeah. anyway. I, I, I think that the last time we did this, when we did it online, uh, showed a bit from Spy, which if you've not seen Spy, uh, Melissa McCarthy... Have you seen Spy? Yeah. I think it's an absolutely... It has some of the greatest slapstick yeah. uh, in it. And, uh, and Jason Statham is brilliant. He is... Yes, he is uh, that has a great punchline as well, in which Jason Statham at the end of the movie is in a speedboat. And he just bids goodbye to everyone. He goes, well, maybe I'll see you again. Bon voyage. And then he just goes off. And eventually they turn to does he know this is a lake? <laughs> it's, it's a really great... Uh, maybe you need to be in a speedboat to make yeah, a film really work, yeah. <laughs> the punchline of a film work. Um, That's the rule. But, yeah, Bridesmaids. So when did you... Did you see this in the movies? It's, uh... Uh, yeah, I did see my, So my wife is absolutely obsessed with uh, Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig and everyone, but, I, but me too. But I'm, I'm a big fan of Saturday Night Live, even as variable as it is, and there's so many people, especially from that generation of... Saturday Night Live, I think it was a, you know Andy Samberg and also and uh, Jason Sudeikis and stuff and that that have gone on to do amazing stuff, um, and I just think you know a uh, it's sort of just proof that if it were ever needed that you can do a film that's all women and it's very funny, uh, but uh, it's you know I think there's just this. It, Quite a lot of these Hollywood comedy films, I kind of got sort of annoyed with the, the improvisational... They all got a bit pleased with themselves about how improvised they were and sometimes would show 15 versions of the same take, which might happen a bit in this film as well. But but the the improvisational elements in this film, I think, are really good. It's, it's, a, it's quite a long film, isn't it? It's a bit longer than it needs to be, I think. But it's... Um, but it's... You know, I think it, it was sort of the introduction, I think, to the wider world of a lot of these fantastic uh, actors who have, who, again, pretty much all gone on to be big stars in their own name, haven't they? Yeah. Um, but I love Kristen Wiig and, you know, there's, sat, sat, there's just there's stuff that she can just do with her face. There's a Saturday Night Live sketch of um, quite a recent one, which is about family all getting loads of presents, but the mother gets a, just gets a robe. Uh, <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I got a thing. I got a thing. I got a... I got a, a catcher. I got a copy of Catcher in the Right, and it just keeps on coming back to again. And I got a robe. It's very nice. <laughs> it's a oh, it's in the sale. Thanks very much. They've all got all these. And just, but it's her face, the way she conveys the happiness and the sadness of this situation, being the mum in the family not doing anything. It's just, uh, it's just awesome. So I, I think it's just how funny. You know, when you've got someone who's that funny, they can sort of literally make anything funny just by. By the way they act, and she, I like it when she does in Saturday Night Live. They do the the, the improvised songs mm. where they where they're both singing a song that they don't know what it is, and then they both <laughs> they both make it up as they go along. Saturday Night Live is worth watching. It's on now TV. There's a lot to plough through, but the the good bits are worth it. Well, this is. Let's have a look at Bridesmaids because this is a. Uh, uh, it's also one of those films where they learn. But it's not cloying. <laughs> I think, though, okay. I know you think it's a sad end. I don't like anyone to learn anything or be, or, or improve. <laughs> <laughs> and he is brilliant in the plain scene in Spy as well, with a, a name oh, confusion. Right. right, we're going to try and get through all of them. So uh, uh, the next one is uh, Bad Trip. Oh yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's have a look. <laughs> so this is uh, well, Richard. This is, this is like this film is amazing, right? And I, and again, uh, Borat got nominated for an Oscar, it's very, it's, and is a very sort of because it's a bit more satirical and serious. This film is just uh, real. It's a kind of prank film, uh, but it just shows people up in a really good light. It's just a, it's about it's about he goes having a breakdown across the country basically, and it shows that people will sort of step in and help. I don't think this particular clip does so much. 
but it's it's really heartwarming because it's a prank show where the jokes on the person doing the prank uh, and then and then seeing how people react to it but it's, a, it's there's a story to it and a film to it and it's it's absolutely brilliant it's just a, Funny this all the is way really through. nice to watch, by the way, because I think a little bit like some of these movies you said you didn't like, you seem to be learning in the set <laughs> as well. <laughs> that negative Richard Herring we used to know. So let, let's have uh, a little bit of this uh, scene which does not represent what uh, you enjoy about this film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not all that great. It's not... No, it's very, very similar to a scene in the Harold Lloyd <laughs> film we showed yesterday. The... Um, I take everything back. But now, now that, of course, goes straight into your next choice of clip, which is Charlie Chaplin's end speech <laughs> from The Great Dictator. So I've, I've never seen a simpler segue from uh, one to the other. Um, so, um... Well, the reason I chose this clip is because it was... It did, it, I did a show called Hitler Moustache, in which I was attempting to reclaim the toothbrush moustache for comedy, because Chaplin had it before Hitler. And Hitler came along, kind of ruined it for everyone. Probably the worst thing he ever did. Uh, and so I grew a Hitler moustache uh, that year, a toothbrush moustache that year, and uh, to see what the reaction would be. It wasn't good. Uh, and, um, but but it, it sort of made me look a bit into the history of the great dictator and Chaplin. And um, this is sort of a rare example of... I mean, it's, it is, it's not funny at all. This is, the, this is him uh, making a, a, a speech about uh, democracy and humanity. Um, but it's sort of a very, and, and it came out at a time where America wasn't in the in the war, um, so th it's a very brave film for him to do. He was sort of told not to do it and uh, and did it anyway. And I think it probably generally did have an effect of getting you know, helping get America into World War Two because I think it's sort of showing up what was going on. Uh, but it just sort of I think it just shows uh, where comedy can cross over that line into being uh, into being sort of serious and being affected without you know it it's it's a, it's a it's an odd thing in a way but it, it's sort of just to have a heartfelt speech at the end of you know a film that is still a funny film uh, and there's obviously amazing uh bits of physical comedy in this film the, the globe the stuff with the globe is uh is amazing and beautiful but this is just to just to have like quite a long speech about what he thinks the importance of humanity is 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 and I closed I closed my show by quoting some of this show as well some of this speech as well so it was um, you know it was, it was but I, I'm sort of fa it's, it's sort of fascinating Hitler and Chaplin because in a, you know ten thousand years time when archaeologists are digging up uh, artifacts from either of those two guys they're going to think it's the same person right because mm -hmm. they're going to be these two the two people from the same time both with this and so they go this is a some kind of symbol of, <laughs> of either good or evil, or maybe both. It's comedy and tragedy together. I, I really wanted to do a play of... Because they were trying to capture him, really. The, the Nazis were trying to get... Would, would have liked to court Chaplin, but I tried. I wanted to write a play about if Hitler had won the war and Chaplin had been, uh, you know, arrested and brought to Hitler and the two of them having a conversation in that room with the globe in it. Um, it would That would have been quite... I might still do it at some point, but... Um, it's sort of, you know, I was, I was fascinated by the way that, that, that the moustache is really, so, you know, becomes mm -hmm. about evil rather than about, about comedy. But, you know, he, he did this, and I think it's just pretty amazing. Yeah, we showed the full Great Dictator on the day of Trump's inauguration right. during Slapstick Festival. <laughs> right. And it's very interesting, a lot of people had never seen it before, yeah. and certainly never seen it on a big screen. The Colston Hall, and it was uh, yeah. It's and he's fantastic. not my, he's not my favourite. You know, I wanted to put something a bit old, a bit from the the era, and he's not my favourite. The sort of slapstick comedians either. But I just think again, he just did some 
interesting stuff. He's not as funny as Laurel and Hardy, but is but he just did he tried out very interesting things like marrying a 16 year old mm. <laughs> oh that, tried, that was tried, a piece tried, of material he, he did it. more than once he yeah. tried it out the, um, <laughs> this is uh, if you yeah the previous film's very interesting about that the, okay. uh, so this, the one bit that I will always that I question about this is when he says we think too much and feel too little I think the line yeah. is nothing oh I don't think overthinking is an issue that, no. with a lot of uh, fascism <laughs> and extremism but let, let's have uh, let's have a look at uh, Great Dictator I think we should have had a, more clips in between the gorilla scene <laughs> and that. But that's yeah. the way it goes, isn't it? Um, the, uh... I think we should have gone straight into the gorilla thing yeah. after that. Well, I kept, I kept <laughs> them the thinking about there's something about Mary and the fact that his hair... Anyway, look, yeah. there's... Uh, right, so, uh, well, Richard Herring, these are all of your favourite films. You. Uh, you have no others, uh, so that's the end of that. <laughs> um, and, uh, Richard, what time are you doing? You haven't got another it's, event today, yeah, 12, Is it 12 o'clock tomorrow, tomorrow at St George's? John, John Coleshaw, I'm doing basically Rahalastapa. Brilliant, and that'll be... Yeah, thank you, with... <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, yeah so. that will be fantastic. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, Richard Heron. You have been listening to a Rahalastapa special with me, Richard Herring, and my interviewer, Robin Ince. Thank you to everyone at the Bristol Slapstick Festival, especially Chris Daniels and his wife, who looked after my children in the cafe. And I'm sorry, they were such a nightmare to look after. They're good kids, really. Uh, I'm indebted to my producer, director and friend, Chris Evans, not that one. Thank you to everyone also at The Watershed for making this such a lovely, lovely occasion. And thank you to all the filmmakers for making those beautiful films that I enjoyed so much. This is a Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFastTheStripe.com production. Come and see Rahalastapa live. Go to RichardHerring.com slash gigs. You can see everybody who's going to be coming up in shows that are yet to come. You can also watch us live stream from anywhere in the world for this Leicester Square Theatre run. Go to GFSBoxOffice.com Buy your tickets just £10 per evening. That's two interviews for just £10. And you can watch those shows at your leisure, either live or any time afterwards that suits your stupid life. Thanks for listening. Now go away. <laughs> <laughs>